Continuing in our Lenten season, looking at the church as shaped in God's missional hearts. God has a mission, and we are his instruments. Listen now to Acts chapter 6. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to the prayer and ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, Nicholas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. And a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this text. I pray now that these words of mine would not be my words, but they would be your words. That you will fill us all with your awesome Holy Spirit. Bless this proclamation. Sweep us up into your life and your mission. We love you. We trust you. Help us to love and trust you more. We turn toward you in our Lenten limits, in the dust of our existence, and ask for your mercy and trust you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. It was a very striking detail at the end of this passage. Jewish priests converting to Christianity. Did you catch that? It says a number of disciples, a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. There were an estimated 18,000 priests and Levites, and they would serve in the temple two weeks at a time. So what happened that even these prominent members of the religious establishment within Judaism started converting to follow Jesus? Well, we'll find out. We're going to explore that. First, I want to talk about Jill's dad, uh, Donovan Aylard. He was a dear man. He lived with us for eight years back in Pennsylvania after dear uh, Mama A, uh, Nita Aylard, passed away. They lived down in Auburn, Washington, and we were in Pennsylvania at a church there. And, and so Papa A, as we called him, moved out to be with us. And we were blessed to have him with us to be an intergenerational household for eight years. And he was a retired artist, had worked for World Vision, Army veteran, had worked in, in uh, the arts all his life and a gentle, um, bright, um, deeply committed man of prayer. And near the end of his time with us, he developed dementia. And we were able to care for him for a while. But then we eventually had to get help. We had to get help. Many of you have been down this road. And delegating care for a loved one can be a, a hard moment. Right? It can be... Something to trust someone who is precious to you into the care of someone else. Letting go, admitting you need help, 
inviting someone you don't know into your space. That's what we did. And you know, many of you know, these home nurses who come and visit. They are God's angels among them, right? Some of them may literally be angels. They were incredible. They would come and cut his hair and help us clean the house. And our house was, for that period, enchanted with that kind of partnership and that kind of connectedness in support of this dear man. It was enthralling to watch people dedicated to those works of service in your household. And then as we eventually had to move him into a nurse care facility um, for a memory care, and the people there just adored him and loved him. And he truly, I think, felt safe there and secure. It turned out to be a beautiful thing to share the load, to share the care. And it was good for him and for us. To see someone you care for, someone who's precious to you, be so well cared for. Well, in the early church, the widows were precious and they had needs. And when confronted with their needs, the early church leaders shared the care. Verse 1, in those days when the number of disciples was increasing... The Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Well, what is going on here? Well, scholars point out that the early church at this point is made up of people, entirely made up of people with Jewish background, but they were divided into two groups. You had the Hellenistic Jews. Hellenistic is just Greek. They were born outside of Israel and they spoke Greek. And they'd adopted elements of Greek culture in their life. And then you had the Hebraic Jews who were more local to Jerusalem and Israel. They only spoke local Aramaic or Hebrew and they really worked hard to preserve their customs where you can see where there could be a divide here. Scholars point out that many pious Jews of the diaspora, when there was a scattering of Jews, they call it the diaspora, dispersing, right? They had moved back to Jerusalem. So you had people that scattered and then people moved back to Jerusalem in their later years so they could be buried in Jerusalem. And these groups of people would would have widows with them who would have no relatives there in Jerusalem because they had been elsewhere for years, right? New Testament scholar Richard Longnecker points out that the Jews in the, in the immediate area had a relief system. If you were the, part of the Jewish religious system there, you had like a relief structure that would support the poor. But when the Greek-speaking Jews came back to Jerusalem and became Christians... Then the poor basket, so-called, of the national system of relief would not be available to them. So they were left out because they were not from there and they were Christians. So it's a double whammy. So the early church, as it grew, grew to include a large number of these Greek-speaking widows who were Jewish, who had moved back to Jerusalem, become Christians, and now they needed help. And they were getting they were getting ignored. 
Early church had problems, just like any church has problems, right? They had struggles. So what did the disciples, what did the 12 do? This is the original 12 or the 11 plus Matthias who was elected after Judah, after Judas. Well, verse 2 tells you what they do. So the 12 gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them. Share the care, share the load. Here, the primary leaders of the early church address a serious need, not by trying to fix it themselves, but by empowering the larger group to choose others to do that. Nobody can do everything. Nobody can do everything. Not even the apostles, not even the original 11. And the early church uses its whole body here to serve the whole person. Notice how much both body and soul matter to the early church. We talked about this when we looked at the letter to the Colossians from St. Paul. You know, he is the fullness of the deity in bodily form. God coming in the incarnation, hallowing flesh. This is not a spiritual, uh, temp- uh, spiritual fleshly dichotomy. This is a unifying and valuing Hunger matters to God's people. Hungry people matter to God's people in the early church. There is a daily distribution of food. Did you catch that in the text? This is part of their, part of their uh, rubric of operating. It's a given. Food is a part of the ministry. We value food at our church. Some of us really like food. You know, we all like food, right? We have the Hilltoppers lunch. We had snacks yesterday after dear uh, Wally's send-off, home-going. And we have a food bank right over there attached to our sanctuary. I love that. And just like in the early church, a diversity of people are showing up at the food bank. You know, when I volunteered there last week, I met people from Russia, Ukraine, Mexico, and Jordan showed up at the food bank right over here. Did you know there's a significant Jordanian population in Makotio? Did you know that? That's just east of Israel. Interesting. Fascinating. God is bringing a diverse group of people to our food bank here, just as God brought a diverse group of people to the food bank of the early church. And we too, like them, share the care. And more volunteers are needed, by the way. They're going to try to expand in our food bank the weekly offerings. are going to try to add a day soon. So they're looking for more people. And that is a spiritual matter for us to consider. Notice how this account of what happened integrates the Holy Spirit into the project of feeding people. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them. It's not just a work of the Holy Spirit to lead people to teach the Bible or to lead worship services. It's the work of the Holy Spirit to equip leaders to feed people too. Feeding people requires spiritual leadership 
2. Notice here that the text recognizes that while Christian leaders may be called to different focus points, one group is to focus on preaching and teaching the word. The other group is to focus on feeding those in need. That doesn't mean that one requires Holy Spirit and the other doesn't. No, both require the Holy Spirit in spiritual leadership, serving the mind, the body, and the soul in Jesus' name are all spiritual matters. Just as preaching the word is the domain of the Holy Spirit, so is feeding people. Feeding people is also the domain of the Holy Spirit. God has a mission that includes the whole person. When the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, he equips people to teach, proclaim, confront darkness, love people, share forgiveness, and give people food. Being shaped in God's missional heart means being empowered by the Holy Spirit to bless people in every way, mind, body, and spirit, feeding them spiritually and literally. We need the Spirit to do all that. Serving human needs requires spiritual commitment and depth. That's why people chosen to serve food need to be people full of the Spirit. And Stephen fits that bill. He is full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is equipping people right now in our midst with wisdom and ideas about logistics and organization for the food bank. And that will enable it to grow and expand. The Holy Spirit will pour love and sensitivity through volunteers of the food bank and to will welcome and care for those coming in need. And not only at the food bank, but in any food and service ministry that our church is attached to. The Holy Spirit is active in promote, prompting people to donate food and, and give to the hungry. We need more people full of the Holy Spirit to be part of this ministry in our campus and to be part of feeding people in whatever way in their earthly needs. I believe that as people full of the Holy Spirit step up to the Mukotil Food Bank and to other ministries of people, to people's needs, they, are all, they all will grow. That's the testimony of the early church. Maybe God will prompt you by the Spirit, or prompt you to prompt someone else in the Spirit to show you a Stephen, right, to be involved in the food bank or some other ministry to meet earthly temporal needs. God ministers in mission to the whole person by the Holy Spirit. So, a group is chosen, and again, evidently, well, evidently all of them here were Greek-speaking Jews, and they were presented to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. Notice here that this calling of feeding the poor and those in need is so important that it requires the whole group's input and it requires a presentation of the chosen group by the whole group to the small group of apostles. Notice how important groups are to the early church leadership structure. You have, again, the whole group giving input to choose a small group, which is then presented to this small group of leaders. Groups, groups, groups. And then as the late great New Testament scholar F.F. Bruce points out, the group of apostles bless and lay their hands 
on these dear ones, on Stephen and his team, and install them into an office. There is a sense of formality here about this text. They presented them to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. That is not slapdash. That is not haphazard. There is a sense of formality and importance here in choosing who will be in charge of feeding people, literally. This role and this goal is elevated by our text. We do well to note that feeding God's people, literally, is at the heart of God's mission. God has a mission for the whole person in the Holy Spirit. Amen? Of course, it must also be noted that in our story here of the early church, while the food ministry is is elevated and valued, it is not a substitute for the word of God. The focus on the word is seen as requiring special sustained attention in and of itself. Notice the apostles say in response to the complaints about hungry people, you can feel their deliberation here. You know, now they're not reactive. They're not defensive. They're just trying to say, all right, how do we work this out? Verse two, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Then they call the group to choose a group to do it. And they say, we'll turn this responsibility over to them and give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. Scholar Robert Wall was down here at SBU for a while. I don't know if he's still there, if he's retired. But he points out that Luke uses word, logos, as a catchword for the full range of the prophet's tasks. The keen interpretation of scripture and the persuasive proclamation of the gospel. This is the word, the preached word of God or words about the word. When I was in college at Lehigh University, I was part of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. It was a wonderful Group and I went, later went on to be on staff with their varsity at Seattle Central Community College. And it was, those were great times. And I, when I was in college, we had a leader when I was early on there, I think it was my freshman year or sophomore year, we had this guy, Al, who would come and kind of disciple, lead. He's the old, he was a grad student, and he would come and lead us and facilitate, you know, exercises for us to grow as young leaders. And, and we would do all kinds of cool things with him. and he, but he would joke around. He had a fun sense of humor. And Al used to say things like, he would say, I'm going to nickname my bed the word. So I can say, I'm going to go home and get in the word. <laughs> that makes me chuckle every time. It never, never gets old. Go home and get in the word. <laughs> I love you, Al. Oh, well, you know, though, it's an apt comparison. Think about this. It does kind of work. I mean, we fiercely guard our sleep, don't we? We can't go without it. Without sleep, we would start to break down. Same goes for the word of God. The early church leaders are as zealous to guard their devotion to the word as we are to guard our sleep. The sense of our text is that the word is at the helm. It's at the wheelhouse. It's what's steering the early church. Scholars debate in the commentary as well. Is this, this text, you know, it, you got to be careful because it kind of, it could be read to sort of diss the temporal needs and lift up the spiritual needs. And I see it, honestly, I think this text is both elevating the, the, the temporal, 
uh, needs of people's physical hunger. But I think it's still putting the word above that. I think there's still asymmetry in the text. The word is still at the helm. You know, the word is still the focus of the leaders. We're not just ever just called to do good. That's great. That's necessary. But it's not sufficient, right? I don't think the word without the uh, the food is sufficient either. But the word is, I feel in the text, is somehow primary. It's it's a bit larger in stature here, important as those things are. You can both elevate the need to share food and yet keep the word at the head. Those are semantic debates, but the sense of our text is that the word is at the helm and that the meeting of physical needs is also elevated. It's a both and. Lastly, a word about Lent. Lent began this week. Lent is the church season in the run-up to Easter when we turn toward God in awareness of our need to be saved everywhere, in every way. Saved from sin, from death. We acknowledge our frailty, our limits. And this passage is about the early church acknowledging its limits. We can't do this. We can do everything. We've got to share the load. You know, I wonder if this Lent, one way we could apply this passage to our lives is by looking for ways to give up our sense of our own self-sufficiency. To ask for help. When we ask for help as a Lenten discipline, that is a way of recognizing our vulnerability and our need for God in a concrete way. When we intentionally share the load, that is a way to acknowledge our limits. I am insufficient. I am not enough. I need God to step in and bring help. I need to share the care. Where in your life is God prompting you to do that? God will provide. So our text affirms the spiritual and temporal needs as part of God's mission for the whole person. Our text calls us to share the load as we do that. Our text affirms the primacy of the word and and assures us that as they stay centered, as leaders keep steering with that at the helm, the church grows. And our church reminds us to remember that we need help. Where do you need help this week? What do you need to delegate that's hard for you to let go of? And how can that be a way to trust God in your vulnerability? God will meet you there and God will provide in every way. May it be so for you and for me in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, Amen.